Coming up this evening, live from New York City. The president signing a semiconductor bill into law. It's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. We ask, will it help level the playing field with China? An appeals court approves Democrat efforts to obtain former President Trump's taxes just a day after the FBI raided Trump's home. Amazon is buying the maker of Roomba vacuum, sparking privacy concerns once again about what they'll do with your data. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. It's great to have you with us. Paul Graney here for NTD Business. President Joe Biden today signed the Chips and Science Act into law. The president called the bipartisan bill a once-in-a-lifetime investment for the country. He argues the U.S. needs to support the domestic semiconductor industry so that it could compete with other countries in attracting investment. They're making decisions right now about where to invest and ramp up production for these semiconductors. They look at China, Japan, South Korea, the European Union, all making historic investments of billions of dollars to attract the businesses to their countries to produce these chips. But these industry leaders also see America is back and leading the way. The bill is worth a cool $280 billion. It would give $52 billion to U.S. chip makers. The rest would go towards tax breaks, tax breaks for major tech corporations, green energy initiatives, and research grants for the administration's various social equity projects. Supporters of the bill say it'll help the U.S. compete with China since Beijing is heavily subsidizing its own chip industry. Critics, though, have labeled the law as a corporate handout that will increase inflation and hurt U.S. taxpayers. I'm here to talk to NTD's Don Ma about the CHIPS actor, two experts, Vance Ginn from the Texas Public Policy Foundation and Stephen Ezell from the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Vance, Stephen, pleasure having you both here. So the CHIP Act is now law. Biden signed it earlier. So, Stephen, I want to go to you first. Tell us how exactly does this bill intend to strengthen domestic semiconductor production and help the U.S. compete with China? Well, in total, the bill provides $76 billion to support America's semiconductor industry. That includes $24 billion worth of tax credits to invest in semiconductor manufacturing plants. It includes another $39 billion in incentives or matching grants to uh, match states' investments. And it includes $13 billion to support R&D and innovation into next-generation semiconductor manufacturing product and process innovation. So, Vance, on that point, Stephen mentioned, I want you to react to them, but same question to you. Does the bill strengthen U.S. semiconductor production and help compete with China? Well, I think what you see here with this overall bill, which is about $200 billion in total, is is a lot of spending um, and a lot of subsidies for the semiconductor industry. Um, and one of the concerns that I have is that, you know, what this could do is push more. There's no restrictions on saying that this semiconductor industries have to produce more here in the United States. Um, what I would like to see them do instead is to lower the cost of doing business. One, one issue we have right now is that we have too high of taxes and too high of regulations. They're imposing more government at a time whenever we need less government, less regulation, less taxes. And so I would have rather seen them instead of throwing a lot more money to certain industries is instead reduce the cost of doing business overall because we have too high of taxes and regulations. It's one of the reasons why a lot of the semiconductor industry has moved to places like 
Taiwan, like to China, to get the lower cost of production. So we are more reliant on those other countries, which is a problem in itself. But instead of creating an issue where you subsidize something and, and, and you know move money around within the economy, instead we should be reducing the cost, the burden, the cost of doing business here at home by lowering maybe the corporate income tax more instead of putting a minimum tax in place like the Inflation Reduction Act does, or cutting regulations by the Biden administration like we were doing during the Trump administration, and instead of putting more of a toll on the back of taxpayers, increasing debt and increasing inflation, which is ultimately going to be the result of a lot of the, the, the parts that are in this bill. All right. Stephen, I definitely want your thoughts on what Vance said, but maybe you can also touch on this point of concern as well. Does the bill lack safeguards making sure China or companies with links to the CCP don't benefit? So it's important to recognize that the bill does include those types of safeguards. Uh, the final text is passed stipulates that money can only be used for U.S. projects and the Secretary of Commerce must confirm that all supported efforts meet a national interest standard. Today, virtually 100 percent of the world's most advanced semiconductors, those operating at the sub-7 nanometer level, are manufactured elsewhere in the world. It is imperative for our industry and our national security that the world's most sophisticated chips, more of them, be manufactured here in the United States. Certainly, as we have seen issues with Taiwan and China flaring up in recent weeks, it focuses the mind that we need to have some domestic resilient capacity to manufacture these leading edge semiconductors here. And you think subsidizing com uh, American companies is the way to do it? We need to be very clear when we use the word subsidy. Let's look at China. China, as part of its $170 billion national integrated circuit strategy, invested $25 billion to stand up from whole cloth to bring into existence a Chinese memory semiconductor competitor called YMTC, Yangtze Memory Technologies. This is with $25 billion of government investment to create a new company that would not otherwise exist in the global economy because it's not economically viable. That's a subsidy. What we're doing here is a maximum of $3 billion per site for a grant to offset the investment incentives that other countries provide to attract semiconductor manufacturers. Recently, South Carolina invested $2 billion to attract BMW's auto manufacturing to their state. We're talking incentives, not subsidies. And it's important to recognize the difference for U.S. policymakers. Vance, what's your reaction? Well, I think we can redefine things different ways, but incentives are the same things as subsidies. I mean, it's coming out of the taxpayer's pocket of how you're going to allocate resources compared to profit and loss in the productive private sector. And so I would rather see the dollars be more productively done within the private sector based on profit and loss compared to the government directing resources to specific businesses, which is what China does, which we should not be doing here in America in a republic that we have a form of capitalism. Um, I, I agree um, that this is an issue that needs to be addressed. I just disagree with the process and the and the um, the overall outcome of what we should be doing as a government. I'd rather this be doing through the productive private sector versus government directing resources. Now, you, you mentioned China subsidizing companies. It works sometimes, right? Why shouldn't the U.S. do it? Well, I, I mean, it, it works maybe for a short period of time, uh, but you can prop up things for so, just so long. I think we've seen the Solyndras of the world here. It's a little bit different, of course, because that's in kind of solar energy, because ultimately this has to be paid for. There's, there's no free lunch. There's no free incentives. There are no free subsidies. And so this will come in the form of higher taxes, um, higher debt, and higher inflation. 
All right, Stephen, your thoughts, last words? I certainly agree with Vance that it is imperative that the United States offer the most attractive environment for private enterprise investment in the world. Now, that said, I do think that we are in a global competition. So when other countries are offering incentives that defray as much as 40 to 70 percent the cost of building a semiconductor fab, the United States simply has to be in that game or private enterprises are going to invest elsewhere in the world. That's why we view this not as subsidies, but as incentives to attract globally mobile investment that could be put elsewhere, anywhere else in the world. I see. All right. Thank you both. Vance Ginn, Texas Public Policy Foundation, Stephen Azell, Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. Thank you both again very much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Thank you. And staying with manufacturing in China, the U.S. solar industry is trying to navigate the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act. That law took effect in June. It bars companies from importing goods from Xinjiang. That's where there's evidence of forced labor. But vital solar panel materials come from that region, so what to do? Anthony's Clown Fredrickson has more. America's solar industry is being impacted by the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which took effect early June. The act requires companies to prove that imported goods weren't made by Uyghur forced labor in the Xinjiang region. I have family members who, you know, have been interned in these concentration camps who have been used as forced labor. And of course, we hear this from everyone in our community. Sali Hudaya is the prime minister of the East Turkestan government in exile. Hudaya is a Uyghur currently living in the United States. He supports the measure, which President Biden signed into law last December. They're not just doing this forced labor uh, project in East Turkestan. They're doing it all throughout China. They're not just using Uyghurs. They're using, you know, Falun Gong. They're using any political dissenters. Uh, you know, including Catholics. Polysilicon is a vital component in solar panels. One estimate says China produces over 80% of the world's solar-grade polysilicon. Another says 50% comes straight from the Xinjiang region. The Wall Street Journal says many Chinese solar panel suppliers have had their shipments detained, according to industry executives. If it's coming from that region, then U.S. Customs and Border Protection will assume that it's a forced labor good. So it will not be able to come into the country. The way around that is if a company can show, uh, provide documentation that its products are not made with forced labor anywhere in the supply chain. Nick Icavella is with the Coalition for a Prosperous America. Icavella says this is a win for American workers because they shouldn't be competing with forced labor. Colin Fredrickson. NTD News. And on U.S.-China competition in the financial markets, Chinese company Alibaba has now gotten official approval to have its primary listing on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. According to a company filing, it expects to have a primary listing on both the New York Stock Exchange and Hong Kong Stock Exchange by year-end. But it may not be on the New York Stock Exchange for long. The SEC wants to delist any Chinese company that doesn't comply with American audit standards. There are quite a few that don't, and Alibaba is one of them. The company filing Alibaba said that Hong Kong primary listing will expand its access to China. Down on Wall Street today, stocks closed lower. The Dow dropping 58 points, two tenths of a percent. S&P lost 18 points, four tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq fell 151 points, one and two tenths of a percent. And a federal court has ruled in favor of Democrat efforts to obtain former President Trump's tax returns. 
Today, a federal appeals court approved a request that allows the House Ways and Means Committee to obtain the paperwork. Trump and his lawyers have said that the request exceeds the investigative powers of Congress. But the court is allowing it to move forward. Still, Trump's lawyers could appeal the decision. It comes just a day after the FBI raided President Trump's home in Mar-a-Lago. One of his lawyers said the search warrant was approved by a federal district judge. And the White House said that it was not informed ahead of time before the raid. Searching the home of a former president is very rare. Trump says he's being unfairly persecuted. Lawmakers also responding to the FBI search today. Anthony's Jessica Beatty has more. Trump Monday posted on Truth Social, these are dark times for our nation. After working and cooperating with irrelevant government agencies, this unannounced raid on my home was not necessary or appropriate. Trump's son, Eric Trump, told Fox News the raid was about documents. The purpose of the raid, from what they said, was because the National Archives wanted to, you know, cooperate uh, whether or not Donald Trump had any documents in his possession. The National Archives in February notified Congress that it had recovered some White House documents from Trump's Florida home. A House panel at the time asked the archives to turn over more information. Trump previously confirmed that he had agreed to return certain records to the archives, calling it an ordinary and routine process. Trump's lawyer, Christina Bob confirmed with CNN Monday night that the FBI did seize additional documents during their search. We reached out to the DOJ for comment, but didn't immediately hear back. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi told MSNBC Tuesday, to have a, a, a visit like that, you need a warrant. To have a warrant, you need justification. And uh, that says that no one is above the law, not even a president or... Others pointed out that FBI Director Christopher Wray was appointed by Trump. Meanwhile, former Secretary of State under Trump, Mike Pompeo, tweeted, The apparent political weaponization of DOJ FBI is shameful. Attorney General must explain why 250 years of practice was upended with this raid. I served on Benghazi Com, where we proved Hillary possessed classified info. We didn't raid her home. Trump supporters gathered outside Mar-a-Lago Monday night to demonstrate. Alex Gonzalez fled communism in Cuba. In my opinion, this is communism. Right here, you can see where I'm from. I live this. I know what this is all about. Weaponized DOJ, weaponized FBI, weaponized the IRS. That's what they've been doing. House Republican leaders have pledged to investigate the DOJ if Republicans take back the House in the midterms. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. An Amazon-acquired iRobot, maker of the Roomba robot vacuum. But that's not all they got. They also got a great source of data. Dirisha Marshall explains. Data. It's everywhere. Ripe for the taking. It's worth so much. We should be getting paid by the corporations that collect our data. For $1.7 billion, Amazon bought iRobot, a company that makes a robot vacuum, which collects data about your home as it cleans. Are we allowing too much data collection in our personal spaces? With crypto hacks happening regularly now, I asked cyber expert Nick Donarski whether our information is safe. We like to think that our home has a physical barrier around it, but when we connect ourselves, when we connect these devices, 
and we don't really know the security around them. Smart household penetration has been on a steady increase for years with a projected revenue of $195 billion by 2026. You could visit a friend's house and not know their system is hacked. It gives the hackers that insight. If they're able to take over, say, your Amazon or your Google Alexa or your uh, Amazon Alexa or your Google Home, uh, they, they can have access past that physical barrier, right? How bad could it really get if your home is hacked? Could you imagine if somebody was just flicking your lights on and off constantly every 10 or 15 seconds? I mean, that would, that would psychologically impact the person, you know, and it's a technical attack. Amazon has been aiming for a complete automated smart home offering, acquiring home security company Ring, smart doorbell company Blink, and home Wi-Fi company Eero. Even the Alexa Smart Assistant was developed as the result of an acquisition back in 1999. Sean Marshall, NTD News. And Meta Chat app WhatsApp is rolling out new privacy features. The platform says it will soon allow users to prevent some people from knowing when they check messages. They'll also be able to leave groups without letting other channels know. WhatsApp, owned by Facebook parent company Meta, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg says they're now taking steps to keep messages as, quote, secure as face-to-face -face conversations. Last year, some WhatsApp users voiced concerns about a policy that said some information is shared with Facebook, which has had data-related privacy problems in the past. Officials say these new protective changes will be available in the next few weeks. And turning to Europe, one company in Germany is temporarily shutting down its 200-year-old aluminum factory to survive the energy crisis. It's a sign of what could be coming for many energy-intensive industries around Europe, Francis McGuire reports. One German aluminum factory is taking drastic action to deal with the mounting gas crisis. The 200-year-old GA Roders facility is due to be temporarily shut down. The family-owned firm wants to move to three weeks of 24-hour shifts, followed by a one-week closure. Managing Director Gert Roders hopes that will help him maintain output and cut the gas bill, which has doubled since last year. You have to know that starting up a foundry like this, heating up the furnace, is very energy intensive. But when it's running, we can keep energy at a good level here. Shutting it down in the evening, shutting it down overnight, and heating it up in the morning is crazily expensive. Roders believes the plan will save the cost of gas needed to fire up the ovens every morning. Though it also means paying staff more to work night shifts. Now, surviving the gas crisis could also see buyers carry the costs. Our customers are not interested in us going bankrupt either. In this respect, we're laying out our prices to customers and telling them they have to pay more. GA Roders produces more than 1,000 parts for major clients like Volkswagen and Continental. Its plans to shut down come with Germany's energy regulator pleading for businesses, governments and consumers to reduce their gas intake. It's asked the biggest firms to submit emergency plans to cut usage further in the winter. That over fears that Russia could cut supplies in response to Western sanctions. This winter, Roders won't be the only European company looking for ways to save gas. So as Europe works to cut reliance on Russian energy, one British energy company has signed a multi-billion dollar deal to buy natural gas from the United States. The company is called Centrica. It's the largest supplier of gas to domestic companies in the UK. 
and is going to buy liquid natural gas from American firm Delphin Midstream. The deal is for 1 million tons of NLG a year off the coast of Louisiana. Louisiana, It's worth about $8.5 billion. Still, delivery won't start till 2026. So, won't help in the short term as natural gas prices soar after Russia cuts supplies. Still to come, stay with us. Toyota's offering to buy back an electric SUV over a problem it can't figure out how to fix. And ice cream makers in Italy, Italy celebrating a boom in demand for liquid treat as tourists return and temperatures soar. That and much more coming up on NTD Business. Welcome back. You've heard the phrase, the wheels came off, meaning something went wrong, right? Well, for Toyota, it's not just a phrase. Wheels have literally come off some of its SUVs. Specifically, the BZ4X electric SUV. The automaker says wheels could just fall off while driving, even after just a short time on the road. Last month, people were warned not to drive the SUV. But now Toyota says people can send their cars back altogether for a buyback because they haven't figured out how to fix the problem. Toyota isn't the first automaker to recall electric vehicles recently. General Motors offered to buy back Chevrolet Bolt EVs following reports of battery fires. And gelato makers in Italy are celebrating high demand as tourists flock back to the country and temperatures remain high. Artisan gelato makers are recovering from the pandemic when they say demand slumped 20%. The Andrew Thomas has more. The history of gelato is recorded here at the Carpigiani Gelato University in Bologna. Back in 1946, the Carpigiani plant began its life making the machinery to make gelato. Its director general, Kaiori Ito, explains the importance of the product in Italy. Yes, so well, speaking of the Italian market, uh, considering that there are approximately 100,000 artisan gelato shops in the world, uh, over one third of the market is in Italy. So we're thinking, uh, we're talking about over 30,000 artisan gelato shops here in Italy. In Pisa, temperatures are soaring. Tourists savor their gelato as they pose with the tower. At the nationally renowned Gelateria dei Coltelli, gelato master Gianfrancesco Cutelli is busy. His flavors range from the traditional, like chocolate, to more complex and exotic recipes like almond with candied lemon peel and saffron. Cutelli is optimistic about the future of the business. After this long period of the pandemic, we have started up again thanks to the heat wave. Work is going very well. We had and are having some problems finding the raw materials which have had a huge rise in costs. But consumption is up. Lots of clients, many tourists, so we are very pleased. Bologna is the home of tortellini and lasagna, but gelato is also an institution here. 
The Gelato University was launched in 2003 at the Carpigiani site to teach the traditional craft of making gelato. Teacher Alessandra Messia explains the key to making an excellent gelato. Making experiments is one of the key points of our job. So we have to be curious. We know how to balance the recipe. We know how to combine together the ingredients. His students come from all over the world. They take classes in the morning and then create their own recipes in the afternoon. Student Omar Hazam from Egypt says he's happy with his creation. So as you can see, the consistency of the, of the gelato. It's a really good gelato. As the summer's scorching temperatures continue, gelato is sure to provide sweet relief for many. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And finally this evening, supermarket chain Aldi is offering to pay for one lucky couple's wedding. That's if they get married at its model store. The wedding will be at the Aldi Insight Center at its U.S. headquarters in Illinois. An Aldi employee will lead the ceremony. The company will pay for the couple's travel accommodations, a photographer, host a reception, and provide wedding favors for up to 50 guests. The couple will also receive $5,000 worth of free Aldi groceries for one year. Couples must submit a short essay about their love story, why they want to get married at Aldi, a photo, and links to their social media accounts. Contestants must apply by next Wednesday. As latest in the MTD business team, myself, Paul Greeny. Follow me on Twitter, though, if you're there. If you have any tips or feedback for the show, email us, business at ntd.com. That's all for today. Thank you for watching. We'll see you tomorrow.